0: If you remember, 10 years ago, Facebook was very much incapable of tagging people in a photo unless someone else did that manually, and now Facebook can recognize someone in a photo faster than we can and tag them sometimes without us even knowing. Uh, In addition, 10 years ago, uh, picking out a cat from a dog amongst a series of images was a relatively impressive task for an artificial intelligence. Now it's relatively run-of-the-mill. Today, I'm lucky enough to have an interview with uh, Dr. Erfan Issa of the Georgia Institute of Technology. He's a professor at the School of Interactive Computing, and he focuses specifically on machine vision. I talked to Professor Issa specifically about how in the last 10 years we've come so far in terms of the field of machine vision, which a lot of artificial intelligence experts in years past would have thought would have been much easier than it ended up being. So how did we climb to where we are today with facebook and and other uh, machine vision programs being capable of what they are and then similarly where might machine vision take us in the next 10 years how much more progress do we have to make what are machines not still quite so good at Uh, and where could they be applied in the future and dr Issas, right on the cutting edge of machine vision speaks a lot to where he sees the technologies taking us and where they could make a difference in society so without further ado we'll delve in directly to today's episode on the tech emergence podcast Uh, So Professor Esau, I wanted to go into first, um, you know, with machine vision being your domain and computer perception, but machine vision maybe being your your even narrower focus. uh, I know there's been a lot of talk around that actually being a reasonable area of progress in terms of uh, artificial intelligence and computation in the last 10 years. What kind of leaps and bounds have we made in terms of computers being able to see and to identify uh, in this last decade?
1: So if you really think about where computer vision, the main goal for the longest of times has been towards understanding images and scenes. You know, pretty much trying to mimic the human vision system and trying to transplant those types of technologies towards machines with the concept being that we really want to build machines that are aware of the environment that they are in so they can interact and react appropriately. And this could be, for example, for autonomous vehicles. But at the same time, in the physical sense, it could be for any kinds of tasks. But one of the bigger tasks that's coming down for us is the fact that the number of images and videos that we get is basically increasing in an astronomical manner. So some of the biggest things that we've kind of made amazing strides in is really kind of starting getting towards some level of scene understanding from images. In the earlier part of the decade that you're talking about, some of the biggest advances were in things like recognizing faces from images, being able to identify, you know, who is the person X, kinds of stuff, Then going from there on to kind of even moving to dynamic scenes to be able to kind of start recognizing objects in scenes and images. And then, of course, really nowadays getting towards even trying to push on the envelope of really trying to say, okay, now I have a car that's going to drive on the road, and we actually use that, which has an ability to see through cameras and other types of sensors on it, where the pedestrians are, where the landmarks are and stuff like that. That's been something going on and making amazing progress on the physical world, but at the same time, one of the biggest things you have seen in the last few years has been able to kind of start identifying objects on web-based imagery. Hmm. The kinds of stuff you will see with personal photographs, being able to identify you know, who's in the picture, which locations you're at, and those kinds of things are, again, something which computer vision is empowering. Now, we're going to be pushing more and more towards all of this kind of stuff, towards even physical embodiment, with robots that can see and interact with us much more at a level than you would expect. Any kinds of a machine that has intelligence
0: at that level. Yeah, and, and let me ask this as well. Um, with you know, I, I think we're all familiar with you know Facebook asking us if we want to tag our brother after we take a picture. And we're like, whoa, how did, how did it know that we could? Um, but but of course also you know you'd mentioned identifying faces maybe 10 years ago was a big deal now we're it's we have machines that can browse web images and pick out a cat from a dog and a you know a giraffe from a you know an, an emu or whatever the case may be um what have been the differences that have allowed that to happen uh is is it you know i mean i imagine always you know we to, we talk about a jump of 10 years some of it is inevitably raw brute force of computing. Um, But some of it is probably something else. What, What has allowed us to make that leap of identifying web images and being able to categorize those, as well as images in the real world, so much better today than maybe the basic facial recognition of 10 years past?
1: So one of the biggest advances that we've seen in the last decade has been kind of how machine learning technologies have really kind of become you know, really embedded into a whole lot of stuff we do. So in in some instances, I would say computer vision and machine learning have really kind of started overlapping. One more thing in general that I believe in is that for the longest of time, we have been in this era of aggregation, that is to collect data. And actually, that's a general statement that I can make about various things. But now we need to go towards this era of sense-making, that is extracting information out of it. So while we were very good at collecting pictures for a long time, Now we can actually use machine learning techniques that are scalable and actually on large amounts of data to be able to now start looking at faces, identifying this is an image of a face, dive deeper into the, you know, uh, down the level and kind of saying, okay, now can I start identifying whose face it is? And similarly, if it's not a face versus a zebra or a giraffe, how do you kind of start differentiating and diving deeper? So one of the biggest things that's happened is availability of data but at the same time, the strength of algorithms that we can develop that can go from the aggregation to sense-making to be able to start asking questions about what is an image or, in general, what is in an, any form of data to start kind of inferring information, yeah. which was always one of the major goals of machine intelligence or artificial intelligence, right, is that systems that could autonomously look at some things and extract Knowledge and information
0: out of it. Yep, in, from the real world, especially too, not even just a very limited chessboard with pieces and movements that are clearly, you know, very calibrated. But take a random picture and pluck a face out of it, um, or, or a, you know, a giraffe or whatever we were mentioning there. You'd mentioned algorithms that are now that much more powerful at doing just that. Um, where have those developments been? Has that just been from iteration, iteration, iteration? Okay, you know, what what sorts of algorithms can we run in terms of identifying? shapes and shades and backgrounds and and whatnot and we test this one okay that doesn't really it can't pick a a cat from a dog we test this one on a on a you know bajillion pictures okay that one can do a pretty good job with cats and dogs but it's not so good with these plants here Um, is it just continuous iteration with these bulks of amassed data that we talked about to the point where we found some ones that actually work pretty well
1: It's a mixture of a little bit of that where, you know, I would almost kind of say we've been making slow progress. But at the same time, one of the beautiful things about research is that we go through different phases of these types of algorithms work on these types of data sets better. And now also at the same time, we have computation that supports it. So you know, statistical methods have kind of really taken off in the last decade or so just because, again, the computation power allows us to sample these types of things better. And now also we're kind of getting back towards network-based methods. So one of the biggest buzzwords that you'll hear about in these days in machine learning is use of things like deep networks or convolutional neural networks. Yeah,
0: ne- neural nets and, uh, and deep learning are sort of the buzzy, buzzy words at this point, kind of the, the, the correlative approach of, of artificial intelligence.
1: Exactly, and I think you're seeing a kind of uh, a return to basics on that kind of stuff. But now, again, one of the things you really look at with deep networks and convolutional neural networks is we can really kind of look at all of this at different hierarchies and extract features from data, especially in the case of images, much better than we were able to do using, again, neural networks uh, from a few years you know, even 20 years ago. Again, a concept that's been out there from earlier times, those kinds of things are not doable. Also algorithmically and at the same time on the image level and even again in general for other types of data sets, we have actually learned how to extract the right kinds of features and do the right kinds of feature selection to be able to now focus in where the information is in a signal and use that much more aggressively with our algorithms to be able to answer questions, Uh, again extracting knowledge from data than we were able to do earlier. So it's a progression, which is, as you know, uh, been over for decades. Yep. We've learned a lot of new insights while actually we've been doing these types of things. Data, computation, in parallel, have made this available. I mean, you know, we have much more compute power than we did before. Yep. We know how to deal with a lot more data than we did before.
0: So, yeah, there's kind of that bipedal uh, aspect of, of our progress of sort of the, just the, the, uh, the hardware just being that much more... Uh, powerful and, and, you know, that much more data that we have, but then also sort of developing better and better approaches to deal with the power that we have. And I suppose that's part of the teeter totter of a field progressing, right? It's sort of dealing with the new equipment that we finally have that lets us do new things. We figure out some of those new things and then we get ourselves some better computers and, and, uh, and kind of progress from there. I've, I've heard a lot of folks, uh, state that in a number of interviews, I think there's a fellow by the name of Paul Sappho, I, I forget his exact uh, role. I think he 's kind of a futurist out in Silicon Valley in some way, shape or form, either way. saw the guy in a documentary. He made an interesting point about um, how much cheaper sensors are now and how much better sensors are now and and, and in some degrees how much better we are at at uh, you know, conserving energy in something like a cell phone, you know how well that performs as opposed to you know technologies of, of twenty years past um, in in the coming ten years, you know I think few of us sort of have a, a decent grasp of um machine vision you know maybe right now okay you know it can point out a person uh, i can pick out a cat from a dog that's pretty nifty uh, you know maybe you can snap a photo of a landscape and it can identify a city for you i i'm not really sure but maybe that's possible at this point um 10 years out you know we 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 have that much more brute force uh power in our computing and at the same time uh potentially we've been chipping away at better and better specific and general algorithms um where where might we be in 10 years in terms of what machine vision might allow for?
1: So, you know, at places like at Georgia Tech, one of the kinds of things we've been thinking about is taking a much more of a diverse approach to this and basically taking it on three-prong. One of them has been much more foundational, really kind of started building much more of the theoretical frameworks that actually address the issue of how computational entities could be used to deal with these large amounts of problems. Second one has been kind of an applied kind of stuff where now if you wanna apply these types of machine learning things to computer vision, well we need to kind of deal with specific sets of features and how would we actually use these to understand images. And the third one which actually has been impacting this whole discipline has been availability of variety of APIs that actually make it easier for anybody who has access to data and a cloud can start doing this. So that's the kind of framework that I think we're going to see a lot more of. That's the kind of stuff that I'm thinking a lot about Now, pushing forward with this, I think what's going to start becoming, and I think I used this word before, is we've been kind of in the data aggregation mode. We need to go towards more sense-making, that is extracting information out of it. And one of my favorite topics within this is can we start doing this with more prediction, more kind of assessment, at the same time more analytics to kind of start learning with temporally varying data. So can we observe, and as you noted, you know, the number of sensors is increasing, yes. The sensors are getting ubiquitous. Uh, we have cell phones now, which is much more, you know, the number of cameras out there is matching the uh, the population of humanity right now. Yeah. Many people are taking pictures. That kind of stuff is basically saying the pervasiveness of sense data is increased. So how do we now start taking this perhaps rather unstructured ad hoc data streams that we're getting from, you know, the population, Using that, to understand more about the signal itself, and understanding more about the content out of it. So now we need to move beyond, perhaps, and again, while it's not solved problem yet, we can't do complete recognition of, you know, airplanes versus bicycles. Yeah. But now we need to start kind of saying is let's put this in the dynamic instances of trying to say is now robots are kind of interacting with objects. If they are, you know, our dream was always robots are going to help us cook things and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. We are now needing to kind of have those robots learn more about the objects and how to interact with those objects. So, you know, kind of the affordance modeling of how it actually pick up an object. Well, that requires you more than just being able to kind of take pictures of it. But now using the fact that these pictures of that object might be available on the cloud with a crowd of humanity using it and saying something about it, our action to bring it back towards the robots and these types of situations to be able to let our technology and the machinery infer more about that so you know those are the kinds of questions that again we've done very well with things like chess playing and in the advances that we've made but now we can actually start going towards much more of these types of intelligence that's much more contextual build on the environment we're in and start again learning online and reacting online to it.
0: Huh, and, and so you know, you had mentioned applying this information to kind of dynamic scenarios. You know, one obvious example, which maybe we'll, we'll get to a little bit here, uh, would be in robotics and sort of embodying some of these intelligences and giving them something other than a hypothetical sort of imaginary chessboard with which to move rooks and pawns, um, and maybe give them, you know, a ball to pick up or you know, uh, something to find in a room or, or uh, a person to rescue. You know, I, I know in the DARPA robotic challenge, obviously, you know, having a, a robot that could eventually run into a burning building and save somebody that would be a pretty big deal. Um, of course that would imply pretty darn good, uh, machine vision. Um, in, in terms of the next 10 years ahead, maybe the fire running robot may not be here. Maybe you will. I'm not really sure. Um, you had mentioned again, dynamic instances. Do you also mean kind of interpreting, even video or, or I'm trying to think of an example outside of robotics I do want to get into that next. Um, in terms of what what these uh, you know how we could make better sense of images um, you know is this is this in diagnostics? I know there's some you know uh, you know slices of, of you know tumor cells or something like that and computer vision being used to to uh, process some of that data to identify particular symptoms or, or uh, situations along those lines what are, what are some of those? Um, applications, I do want to get into robotics, but what are some of those applications uh, outside of of robotics where machine vision might be able to step things up?
1: So one of the areas that, again, this is something I've spent a little bit of time on, and at Georgia Tech we've been doing a lot of work on behavioral imaging, that is using just the fact that we have videos of people moving around, can we predict the likelihood of what's likely to happen? For example, if I can watch an elderly person get up from a chair in a video, can I over time start predicting that their ability, their physical motor skills are deteriorating over time. So eventually, if not taken care of with the right kinds of sport, they might fall. Those kinds of things are again dynamic situations with the video analysis as being one of the tools that could actually be used for doing this. We're doing this with video. We're also doing this with simple uh, sensors that could be just put into the environment itself, which could be, again, you know, accelerometers and stuff like that, but a holistic approach of getting towards behaviors from data and assessing, for example, how is somebody doing this? And again, a set of other projects that we're looking at is also observing people like in surgeons and patients in hospitals to kind of see how they're moving about and how is the kind of the workflow changing with the dynamics of the situation and how they react. And then this is kind of becoming a really a big effort on a variety of domains in the academic disciplines to kind of start looking for temporal behaviors. And video actually becomes an interesting domain for this because again, as I said, Putting these types of sensors in a space gives you a lot more physical information of what's happening, and we actually have a big project at Georgia Tech of trying to even use this with children with autism, spec uh, on the where's people on the spectrum for autism, and seeing if we can actually start predicting, you know, what are kinds of issues that are there, how to provide the right level of support at the right time. Another domain, again, not directly in the visual domain, but uh, in the data analytics domain, in the healthcare area. One of the biggest questions is: just by looking at data, can we predict after somebody has been, you know, uh, released from a doctor's hospital, when will they come back? How yeah. do you analyze this kind of stuff from data itself?
0: That, and th- those are those are big deal uh, issues. That that those that kind of raw number crunching and and probability type game, it seems to maybe be a bit of a step above what an insurance company does in terms of understanding your demographics and whether you smoke and blah, 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 and what you pay for, for insurance. You know, what seems even more challenging, I think, was you'd mentioned folks who are on the, the autistic spectrum, um, you know, looking at video, I presume, of, of sort of folks, you know, being taken care of or exhibiting certain behaviors and aiming to figure out kind of the the pace or cadence of different kinds of care and maybe when we can expect a certain kind of emotional reaction over time, if we start to notice patterns that really involves interpreting, you know, emotion on people's faces and, and noticing, you know, particular places where certain kinds of activities seem to happen repetitively. That seems like, uh, an, an awful large challenge. How are you guys aiming to kind of crack that nut there in terms of, um, the, the determination of care on the autistic folks? What, what are you trying to pick up on? What are the machines aiming to detect in order to better that caretaking process?
1: Sure. So just to kind of give a historical perspective, sure. uh, I, my PhD thesis was on actually building a system that would recognize human expressions and emotions almost 20 years ago. Uh, and it's an area that many of us have continued to work on. And one of the biggest instances which we can actually do is: can we actually observe a person in a various types of dialogic situations, perhaps an interaction with a caregiver, and observe how they react to different types of things? Um, that oh. is one. Also, in case of a you know a child on a, on the spectrum, observing them how they actually react in their own home situations with uh, their parents, being able to kind of figure out. And predict the patterns on how they are actually responding to various signals and again working with people in specifically in the autism literature here with experts who actually spend time with these children and know what are the kinds of markers, behavioral markers, that could be used to detect this is likely to happen and this yeah, child is showing yeah, yeah. these types of uh, perhaps delays in different types of uh, you know, development Can we actually pick up on those and actually now encode these inferences into a machine system that would actually be observing this and then providing to a caregiver just you know warnings. Hey, this one maybe you want to need to look at a little bit Yeah, more. yeah, yeah. Uh, and this can be again done for the children's domain, but it can be done for Alzheimer's and a yeah. variety of things. Again, looking for behavior markers from data and start kind of highlighting to an expert saying, hey, maybe this is something you will now actually ask a question at the right time
0: yeah 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 man i mean you know it seems like again we as humans we have a bit of an intuition and and we we can recognize patterns but maybe a machine would be able to in a very tangible sense score emotional reactions by facial recognition and 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 really dial into particular behaviors that, of course, we, you know, a real expert working with autistic children would be able to pick up on these, but maybe a, a machine trained to do so could could pick up on those signals, you know, ubiquitously if, if we had multiple camera angles and really kind of dial in on on emotive responses and, and pick up on its own patterns to sort of uh, allow the, the person, again, to, as you had mentioned, be notified of sort of when and where we might need to exhibit different kinds of care, or, or if someone, if a, a child might be coming close to being upset because it's noticing, you know, particular kinds of behaviors that are happening at particular times, um, that, that seems like, uh, an expert system for lack of better terms. If, if I, if I ever heard of one, one that can actually sort of, you know, take the knowledge of these folks that are really working with autistic children, turning that into the detection of behaviors in real time in a machine. That's, that's pretty incredible.
1: And actually, just to add to this, I mean, you know, emotion plays a role in it, but just being able to kind of detect and infer behaviors in general and timing of responses is also an important cue that actually plays into it. You know, again, we have from uh, experts in the domain of, again, both Alzheimer's and other types of things looked at and found in even in, in, in autism spectrum that there are specific behavior markers that, you know, a child does this, x when certain things happen or they get frustrated or going to a stemming behavior for example at certain instances can you detect those times Create a some sort of a way to detect it and make available to somebody and at the same time i mean if a real-time system existed let's say a parent was noticing that they're interacting with a child and all of a sudden the child is uh, not appropriately responding and you know one of the bigger aha moments for me was many years ago when i was speaking to a speech apologist I was basically saying is if they actually could hear the speech of a young child earlier in age, they would be able to kind of predict that this person might need specific types of supports eventually. And providing that kind of in-the-home analysis that would actually now come to the experts with some sort of an additional diagnostic is the kinds of stuff in the healthcare behavior domain that we're very excited about. And again, as I said, something which many of me and many of our colleagues here at George Tech and including myself been in working on. And it's becoming a big area where, as I said, now healthcare, if it's going to get home, this is where it's going to get uh, much more pervasive.
0: Yeah, com- computer perception being, as you had mentioned, more than just vision, if we can listen to voices. And uh, again, use that as leverageable data to to bring to a speech pathologist or to a doctor to to analyze and, and whatnot it it's, uh, again goes beyond vision Th- that 'll be my last question i 'm very wary of our of our time here. I did want to ask uh, this last one we 've talked a good deal about embodiment uh, of an intelligence and why maybe robotics is actually a bigger part of our understanding of AI than maybe some folks assume i think uh, and, and i don 't have an opinion uh, either way in any kind of dogmatic sense. Um, uh, some folks believe that you know you, you could hypothetically have a black box with enough knowledge and raw computing power if plugged into the internet that could you know uh, potentially become a, a strong artificial intelligence or a real general artificial general intelligence that would be able to learn and iterate and expand itself and pursue its own goals and whatever the case may be and other folks really believe that there isn't much of anything that we could call an intelligence unless it has some kind of legitimate embodiment, whether that be through uh, you know, senses, whether that be through some kind of a physical form to interact with its world. Um, I know you work in the robotics space and and combining sort of machine vision, um, with, you know, robotics and artificial intelligence while you work at MIT. Um, are you of the belief that in order to really understand artificial general intelligence or stronger AI, we would have to, uh, leverage perception and real world interaction in order to ever get there? Or are you not necessarily married to that idea?
1: So as an academic who has a long-term goal of trying to understand both human intelligence and machine intelligence, I believe that they are both connected to the extent that embodiment is an important part of the paradigm. But having said that, the pragmatic part of me says is it really depends on the task at hand. Yeah. If the task requires you to have a physical embodiment, then you really need to kind of start building a system that's reactive, you know, interpretive, but at the same time interrogative, that is, asks a question when it's right time to do so. And that, you know, embodiment is an important part of the paradigm in situations where there is physical embodiment required in the room. Uh, now, what form that embodiment should take is, again, pragmatically at, at the same time a practical issue. Uh, Georgia Tech, when we started the Aware Home Project, we basically thought that the whole home is could could be an inside out robot, right? It doesn't have to have legs, but yeah. it has an embodiment that could actually be much more responsive to doing types of things like we are interested in. As we learn more and more about the human intelligence, we also know that partly we interact by asking questions or by being able to physically touch things. And again, those would be other levels of things that a intelligent machine on the long run would need. If you really need somebody who's going to find, uh, for lack of a better example, you know, all of the airplanes and cows and you know, children and cats and dogs on the Internet, well, maybe that doesn't need to have an embodiment that you would think of. Yeah. But if it were to build a system that's in our physical environment and it's going to tell me that now I'm having a tough time getting off a chair because there are no armrests on that chair, well, I think then it might be able to point. So, again, the spectrum is wide, and as researchers, what we need to kind of start thinking about it is what kinds of embodiments are needed for different types of environments, and therefore, again, working with the experts who work in these domains can give us a lot of guidelines.
0: Curious. Yeah, if we want want a, a machine to understand our internet and interpret and interact in our internet, then we have to let it loose in the internet. If we want a machine to understand the real world and interpret and make sense of the real world, maybe we have to let it loose in the real world. Uh, that, that actually sounds like a, a pretty reasonable response. I, I'm wary of our time. Uh, Professor Essa. thanks so much for being here. Anybody who's tuned in right now, if you want to look up Professor Essa's work at Georgia Tech, relatively easy to Google E-S-S-A and Georgia Tech. Professor, thank you again so much for being here on Tech Emergence. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence podcast. Thanks for being here. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology. And more. And we want to hear from you as well, so be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at infotechemergence.com. And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off. And I'll see you next week.